Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club and year number two of our podcast. Last August, in episode 21, we talked with Dr. Jesse Davis about his new book. Since that time, his book has been released under the title, Stronger Than You Think. Dr. Davis was kind enough to send me a copy of the book. As I read it, I had a number of thoughts and questions for us to explore further. So I asked Dr. Davis to come back and join me again as we celebrate the release of his book and we dive a little deeper into some of these topics. So without any further ado, Dr. Jesse Davis. Hello, Dr. Davis. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Excited to be here. So I thought this time we'd start off by talking about kind of some of these crazy times we live in. Um, I, I read your book over the Christmas break, and so it really kind of inspired some thoughts in, in my head as to uh, as to kind of this this weird world we live in, where it seems like up is down and right is left. And um, and one of the ways that plays out for us in, in our offices is that um, science is often confused with scientism, uh, which is more of a religious belief that and if we can just call things science, and so you see it all the time, people are like, oh, there's scientific proof of such and such. And just because they state that, people go, oh, then it must be true. And that's not always true. You go and look and you go, there's actually no science on that. Um, and so we get this thing where it seems to me that what's happening is that if we say that science is the only way we can know anything, then by controlling the science, you can control all thought. And it's something that's kind of been playing out. And so we run counterculture to that by a lot of the vitalistic kind of ideas that we put out there for people. Um, and as we talked about previously, you see that the push is kind of dividing people there. There's definitely a group of people who are craving more of the science side while there's others who just fall totally into the scientism side. And it's actually creating one of, I mean, right now in the country, there's many, many divides, but this is just another one of them and probably a lesser one because people probably aren't quite as passionate about it. Although with COVID-19 and mask wearing and vaccines and all that, you see it becoming a little bit more contentious, I guess is a good word. So um, let's start off by talking about that a little bit. And you mentioned a little bit in your book. So can you talk a little bit about, about this, this struggle to try to um, have competing paradigms and how we make that work? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, was and I was excited to hear your feedback about stronger than you think. It was really excited to uh, I was really excited to get it out and um, hear back from people as they start to go through it. And it's gotten really good, uh, gotten really good feedback and uh, and reception around it from the chiropractic community. And it's something that that particular topic is is something that gets a a chapter in the book. It's it's a real focus there, and you know, it kind of comes down to the idea that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like it's really this, it's really false and uh, sort of a lazy thinking that we can only have one approach. And as chiropractors, we are experts and realistically probably the experts in a vitalistic approach to health. And so that's what our focus is. But, um, you know, thanks to a, a lot of members in our community, uh, you know, we're more and more capable around the science side. And, um, and that's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing, as long as we understand where our expertise is, not only because we understand, okay, this is where we're best and where we're strongest, but literally because we're the ones that handle that. Like if, as chiropractors, if we don't, if we don't, and that's one of the real reasons I wrote this book, if we don't plant the flag and say, yeah, we are the experts in a vitalistic paradigm and a vitalistic approach to health, which is in really high demand in the community, who else is going to do that? I, I don't really know. You know, I don't see anyone else that there's a lot of other great things in this sort of natural health realm, but there's no one that is more uh, at their roots capable of doing that than chiropractors. And so what I, the way that I framed it in the book is just like in our health and in our body, we want to have this ability to be flexible and adapt and respond. You know, it's, it's the idea that, you know, the body is strong and healthy uh, in, in, uh, you know, based on its ability to adapt to the stresses put on it. It's the same way with our thinking. 
and this idea that we have to get sort of stuck in one way or the other, it's almost, you know, it's the idea of like, it's a mental subluxation. It's just a, it's a mistaken thought pattern to say, okay, well, that's not scientific, so it must be trash. And that's, it's incorrect, you know, it's incorrect. Uh, the science really comes down to, it's a method to help figure out details. Whereas there are bigger, bigger things at play from there, you know, in terms of, in terms of belief systems, uh, you know, it's the details is very easy to get lost in the details. And there's another thing, you know, another huge part of the book is that, you know, this is really what we've been doing this year is we've been getting lost in the details of how do we, you know, avoid exposure, minimize risk, sit or stand in a restaurant with something on our face, all these minimal details that may or may not affect people's exposure risk while not being able to focus on the big picture of actually how healthy people are. And so you can focus on the detail all day long while getting healthy or just rapidly going down the tubes while, you know, while you're nitpicking all the details and either one of those, it's, it's an independent, you know, it's, 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 we've got to have the flexibility to see the big picture. Yeah. I guess I should take a second. Um, the, from the time we talked last time till now, you changed the uh, the working. The, you changed the title of the book. It's stronger than your name. It's a good title, and it's probably extremely appropriate right now uh, because one of the things that when I was practicing the same patient all the time, like a good example is you go to have somebody get on the knee chest table, and they tell you, "Oh, I can't go down there. I have a bad knee." But then you think, "Okay, I'm going through your history." You don't have any problems with the ligament or the tendons or the meniscus or anything else. What you have is knee pain. And so knee pain becomes a knee problem. So I can't do things like that. And it's funny that you see this mental block of how do I convince this person that the body is stronger than they think it is? That, and even if it's having a problem, you can make it better. You have to do effort. You have to do work. Um, or I think I could even link it to the fact that, um, with with when the whole COVID thing was coming, uh, Chris Meyer and I were talking about the. I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast the what we thought would happen in the United States if it was coming here, and we both concluded that due to our massive nationwide obesity problem, we probably were going to perform very poorly. And it seems that we did. And it seems that obesity has been a major comorbidity. And when you've got people who are overweight, it's so hard to convince them to do something about it because they'll tell you, I've tried every diet, I've done exercise, it hurts too much, I can't do it. And really getting past that initial mental block of you are stronger than you think and you don't have to be, <laughs> you don't have to have a godlike body right this second. You need to start working the process to move that direction. And so I think it's a great title. What made you decide to change the title to that? Yeah, that's a great question. I... I had several working titles and one thing I saw, you know, it, it sort of gave me permission to leave the title a bit longer than most people would recommend. Cause I, I really added two subtitles, um, it was back way back in the day, you know, back in the 1800s or prior book titles were very, very long. You know, they'd be, it was almost like a paragraph, and, yeah. you know, it really, there was something to it. Whereas it was part of the marketing and promotion of the book where, you, you know, you would have to tell people what, the book was about and make it exciting. Um, and now everything's you know digital and shorter. But there were several ideas that are there that all come from the chiropractic idea. One, you know, the screw normal concept, and that was the original title for the book that I I really liked and was tempted to run with. Um, one, it was a it was a rebuttal to the whole new normal concept that was pushed for most of last year, meaning, you know, we're just going to keep doing the same things that we were doing before, but with, uh, you know, extreme uh, germ uh, avoidance. And the point of that for me was one, I don't think what we were doing before last year was good enough to begin with. So doing that in a much harder way was not going to work well. So that, that was where that came from. And then I ultimately wanted to have a more, uplifting message for people uh and really give people confidence and i was starting to see this this pattern emerge with so many people just the idea that you know i'm going i'm going to harm you any exposure that i have to you or to other people is harming them and 
people understand that perspective of, okay, I'm exposed to your germs and that's a threat to me or you, but they're not exposed to the opposite, that you have a power inside your body that heals your body and runs your body. And the more you support that, the more that it's going to respond. And so that was where it came about. What's kind of last minute, really? How that change came about. And then I added the second uh, tagline from panic to performance, the chiropractic way. And really where that came from was is working with patients, you know, having someone come in and say, here's my injury or my crisis. And can you get rid of this crisis? And that was to me, really reflected in that whole in that whole new normal idea of just get rid of the problem and I'll just go right, you know, and then everything will be fine. And I would reframe that for patients to say, okay, well, I don't think that, you know, that sounds good, but it's also in a way saying, okay, just get rid of this crisis and, and put me right back to where I was before it started. Is also saying, hey, put me right back to where I was when I was in the midst of creating a health crisis. And people don't tend to look at it that way when they're showing up for healthcare. But I think it's important to show that is ultimately what they're saying when that's what they're looking for, rather than coming in and saying, yeah, help me understand how to maximize my health um, and, and frame that for patients that way coming in. And then this is just the societal version of that, of that concept. And it was just taking, okay, this is what I see in the office put people in perspective from just eliminate this problem for me and, and snap your fingers and put me right back to where I was, where I was, where I was creating this crisis. Do, okay, great. I'm ready to really create something good. And then, you know, apply that to a bigger picture of what we were going through as a society. Yeah. I think that was one of the things from the book was recognizing that, um, that what you're talking about was people being unaware of just how sick they were prior to COVID. And all it did was like, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't really this massive uprising thing. It was showing this problem. And what it reminded me of is for me personally, um, I had a gallbladder problem for years. I inherited a genetically inferior gallbladder and the symptoms started showing up when I was a teenager. But everybody said, oh, you're a young, healthy kid. It can't be that bad. And they ignored it. And it wasn't until I got to be in my 40s that they went, oh, you're older now. You're in your 40s. You probably have a gallbladder problem. But I knew I've had a gallbladder problem for decades. <laughs> and it was making me sick that whole time. And once it was, once that problem was solved, I, I started feeling better in my 40s than I did as a teenager. And I could never figure out why do I feel so sick as a teenager? And everybody's like, oh, you're a young teenager. You're healthy. Well, I don't feel healthy. And I think there's a lot of people who even before COVID would tell you that if they looked in the mirror, they may not have looked healthy. They probably didn't feel very healthy. They weren't doing that great. And we see overwhelmingly that uh, even if, if COVID has the ability to take out healthy individuals, then it absolutely has the ability to take out people who are already compromised. And that going back to that old normal of being compromised is not a good place to go back to. I think that's probably the basic thesis of chapter one. Um, and that's an excellent place to start. Yeah. It, you know, it's like the recommendation when you hear patients come in and they say, well, I was told by, you know, that I'm not bad enough for surgery yet. So just wait, you know, just wait until I'm, I'm, uh, it's bad enough for surgery. And yeah. Like, well, I don't know if that's a very good recommendation, <laughs> like just sitting here and waiting for this to get worse, uh, is not what I would recommend that, that you do. And it's, very much the same as what we've gone through, where here was this respiratory illness that overwhelmingly uh, had serious effects. Like here in Massachusetts, where I am, 98% of people that, that died had a pre-existing condition um, before they ever ex got exposed to a virus. And I say, okay, well, there's a respiratory issue that overwhelmingly affects unhealthy people. Let's all just stay in our houses and wait. <laughs> either it goes away or there's some sort of technological solution. And I was like, I don't think that that is a good solution. You know, not to say that, you know, some aspects of that at times might be warranted for, you know, depending on who the people are, or, you know, we can talk about how to, how to structure that, but as an solely as a response, but that, that's a big mistake. That was, that was my, and, and what happened was I, I had a lot of frustration with it as a lot of chiropractors did watching the response. And finally I thought, you know what, 
Like, why am I confused by this response? Because I'm, I'm looking at this from my perspective and having frustration around what the overall response has been. And I finally got to this point where I thought, well, of course that's resp the response. You know, we live in this outside in society. That's how we respond. And the, the outside in perspective is absolutely entrenched in the sort of the establishment. That's just how they function. Whereas the sort of inside out and even just beyond that, the sort of natural wellness oriented groups of people are all, you know, grassroots, individual people, small groups, business, entrepreneurial, it's all, you know, distributed and small. And as I saying, so finally I got to this point, I was like, oh yeah, of course this is what is happening because we're all responding the way that we already know how, you know, it's panic and stress and everyone's trying to figure it out. And that's the natural thing is that you just respond through what you already know. Mm -hmm. And so then I think for a lot of, lot of people, there was this sense of, they understood that they were missing something in what was happening, but just they didn't have at all the language or the tools to know what it was. You know, it, it just couldn't even see it, let alone say, okay, well, here's real in-depth strategies around how to put that in place. And so you had these lay people saying, I don't know what's, you know, people, just people in the community saying, I don't know what's going on here. This doesn't make any sense to me, but not having the background and the detail it's, it's it's easy as chiropractors to forget that the inside out mentality is a skill set. You know, we yeah. teach patients, but I, I think that it was hard for us in the moment to, to, you know, see what was happening and say, okay, here's where we need to put it into gear. And I don't put myself in any, any different place. Like I just, this book was aimed at myself as much as anyone to say, okay, well, we need to get out there and start teaching what we know so that people have this, the second year, the second option that they can access. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about the fact that we, uh, as chiropractors, we go to school, we do all these things. We learn to adjust. We have all this ability. And yet when you first get in practice, the first time you have a really severe patient and you adjust them and they get better, you kind of think, wow, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> and yet we have every reason to believe that it would work. Um, we've committed all this stuff to the idea that it works. And then when it works, you're still kind of shocked. And sometimes that feeling lasts for a while, but you still go, wow, I can't believe that worked. So then I think from their perspective, they've never seen it work. If it's hard for us to believe it with all of our training, all of our experience and all that we've done, and it still sometimes is shocking, then it's no wonder that for the lay person to think that inside out healing is actually going to work. It's not that hard to understand that they would have a hard time grasping that because if they haven't ever seen it, why would they think that it would work? They've been told it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, a great, great point. Yeah. Essentially, you know, they've been painted into a corner that there's just one option that works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, so I just, this is kind of off topic, but I just, <laughs> I just read something where I guess there's a politician up in Minnesota who has decided to try to pass a bill and the bill <laughs> reads so that um, if you have ever been exposed to COVID or if you've been sick with COVID, then you need to get the appropriate treatment, which is the vaccine. And I was like, wait a second, that's not how it works at all. But that led me to a concept to a, that we were talking about earlier, this idea that science is supposed to determine policy, but right now policy determines science. And so you've, we've basically got government officials playing doctor and they generally are pretty bad at playing politician. So they're really bad at playing doctor and they don't understand physiology. They don't understand how things work. And so even if we don't want to say it's a conspiracy or theory or anything like that, it's just simply ignorance rising to the surface, people acting in a way that's consistent with what they think they know, but it, but it doesn't, if you know the science, you kind of go, this is not going to end well. This is all going in a weird, odd direction where the science is no longer dictating because science, and I think you mentioned this a little bit in the book though, but science is supposed to be eliminating bias. That's why we do double blind studies is we want to remove the bias and we're trying to get past the bias to see what really is. And right now it seems like science is creating more and more bias. You can go on Facebook and find all kinds of people who have all these strong opinions that are based in what they would call science, which is really almost 
purely bias. And so it's this weird world we live in. And certainly in, in people's offices, if they're trying to promote science, there are going to be patients who push back with what they believe is science, but is really more bias. And that can be, it's, I guess it's probably a battle that's going to have to be fought or addressed at some point. But what kind of ideas do you have about how people, how we're going to eventually end up fighting that battle for, for um, I guess, mind space, but just really trying to reclaim science? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was really raised in that uh, in that environment. Um, so my father's a, a research scientist. He was a geneticist. He's actually a plant biologist. Um, he was an, an author on the publication when they published the uh, actually the strawberry genome project. That was one of his main uh, organisms that he studied. And I worked for him from when I was very young, um, you know, teenager, and. So I had, had an early career in science and then transitioned, uh, you know, after a fairly short period of time into chiropractic because I saw the limitations of it. And it's very powerful. You know, we, a lot of what we have now is is the result of, of a very analytical approach, but it's also less than people tend to think. And, you know, we have this very complex technological society where we have these great mechanistic and detail understanding. But a lot of that also wasn't science. It was just straight up, I'm going to try to figure this out and make this work. And so, yeah, now we live in this, in this society where the, the details of our, you know, our technology and, and it, it's so complex that you can't know everything. And so mm-hmm. there comes this, this, this sort of deferral and, and it's, you can't avoid it because like even us as healthcare professionals, we can't know everything that I think it was, uh, you know, I think it was Matt McCoy who Dr. Matt McCoy used to teach down there um, with you guys. And he said something and it's, it was talking about the vaccine issue. He's like, yeah, you can study all day, every day for on this issue and still not come close to knowing everything. And I was like, well, I'm glad to hear that because I've looked at it quite a bit and, you know, know much, much more about it than, than, uh, most people out there and I still know it's just like scratching the surface. So I think it comes down to people connecting with what, what do they want to do? And this is how I think this is a very valuable perspective and how I framed it in the book. Like what is your ultimately as your, at your target that you're trying to hit. So as an individual person with your health, and are you are you trying to get as healthy as you can, or you know just I- improve your health in general, like at all, or are you simply trying to reduce risk? And that's that's a question where where it boils down to, and and it's been framed this past year of hey, let's just reduce risk, and that's you know that's okay, that's a way to approach your life, but you know science or not, that it doesn't it doesn't have a, uh, you know, the scientific method itself, it's underneath that decision for people as a, as a person, you can't say, well, what's better, (laughs) you know, like what's a better way to try to live. Science doesn't really answer that question. It really doesn't even have the capacity to do that. So then we have this mix where people aren't trying to, aren't exactly sure what they're trying to do. They're trying to sort out the details. And no one is clear about the conversation they're trying to have. Or, you know, so rarely is that a framework being set in place to say, okay, what are we trying to do? And then what is a good way to do that? The general conversation is just getting mixed up. It's It's all mixed together. And so then people are having these discussions or internally trying to make their own decisions. And... It's not clear what, you know, it's just a giant soup. It, and so that's where, that's where we're at. And I'm really trying to create some clarity around that and put people in a position where they can say, okay, I know what I'm trying to do when I'm making decisions. Yeah. Yeah, because you're right. We can't even come to a clear scientific consensus on how we should eat. Like what is a proper healthy diet that will cause you to live the longest? 
And if we can't come to a, a conclusion on something that simple, then I think maybe that is the proper way to start addressing the whole scientism issue, that science doesn't have all the answers. It's, it's data. It gives us ideas. And the truth is, if you looked at all the different diets that are out there, some of them work really well for some people and some of them work really well for other people because as humans, we're very much alike, but still different. <laughs> and so what works for one person may not work for another and people work in different amounts. Plus, there's no accounting for the amount of damage any one of us has done to our bodies during the time we've been on Earth. And yep. that changes things too. Much so in this, and, you know, this whole COVID issue we've been dealing with, you know, is an extreme example of that because there's a wild, you know, huge variation between one person's susceptibility versus another. And then, which is pretty well understood at this point. And then I think a lesser discussed topic that I think is really important is how, how you get exposure. And so one thing I talked about quite a bit in the book was your ability to adapt and the amount of research and details on this is a lot smaller, but it's, it's the idea of, okay, what, what exposure is going to be harmful? Because the majority, the large majority of the exposures are not resulting in a real negative health, health outcome. That's something that is not a, you know, a popular discussion. You know, I think that it'd be pretty easy to get a lot of flack for saying things like that. Like it's, it's almost like we have this issue this past year where you can't, you can't talk about minimizing, you know, you can't make the risks seem less, you know, it's like people just want this, this sort of rule by fear and say, well, if we put everyone in a place of fear, then we'll all be safer and better off. And I just don't subscribe to that. I think that if we look at the details, like we know where we want to go and we rationally look at the details, that would be better than if we just say, let's scare everyone into complying with a, a, you know, one risk reduction paradigm only. And in doing that, just not even look at whole swaths of the details. And I think that's been a big, you know, it's been a big hole in what's happened in the last 12 months. The whole world's been focused on this thing. And then we really don't have a good idea of, okay, what, what type of exposure really causes the harms that we're seeing? Mm -hmm. Gray area. And so everyone, you know, you, everyone going out everywhere is, is, uh, you know, it's a hockey rink with plexiglass everywhere and helmets on and, and this, that, and the other. And, so it's a tough topic because you can't get an exact answer, but it's, I think it's a really, really important one. Yeah, I saw research months ago, I saw a research study that was done where they were trying to measure with people who were sick with COVID when they breathe, how much of the COVID virus came out in their breathing. And they were trying to detect it in all these different ways. And they found that no matter how much they tested it, they couldn't detect any in their breathing. And that kind of confused them. So then they checked other ways and they basically found that um, they could prevent the spread easier or it was more effective to use hand washing than it was to do breathing. And that started to call into question, is this a virus that's actually even spread through breathing? Yeah, I mean, it was pre immediately presumed that it was, but they were having a hard time producing the evidence to indicate that it was. And yet, if you say that, it's like, ooh, that's so wrong. Like, and that's what I mean. It's like, no, true science is let's investigate and let's, let's duplicate the study. If they say they can't find it, somebody else do it. See if you can find it. And if somebody can find it, then please produce the evidence. And then from there we can move forward. And it's like, we really need science to be able to kick in and do what science does, but it's actually being muted and not allowed to do what science does because we've already decided that it's spread by breathing. Therefore it's spread by breathing. So don't you dare say otherwise. Yeah. And that seems quite anathema to, to real science. It's a, you know, it's a funny thing, right? Like the real researchers and scientists that we've had in the past were, you know, there's real risk involved a lot of times. And they, a lot of times had real, real harm. Like, you, you know, you look at same time chiropractic was being developed you know, Marie Curie and, you know, people that were researching uh, radioactivity and they, you know, paid a real, a real, real price for it. And so same thing, you know, not to say that they should, but there is, you know, just like there's, there's risks in, you know, we're trying to decide, okay, how do we live with a, a respiratory illness that's new? Well, there's risks on, on all sides. There's risks to trying to avoid exposure. 
And yeah. same thing, there's risks to investigating things. You could say, okay, well, let's put 10 people in a room and see who gets what. Well, obviously you can't do that now anymore. Um, <laughs> that's a bad thing, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's risks to applying science and, and gaining, uh, gaining knowledge. No, no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. But my wife and I have these conversations all the time. Like, so how many people die a year of cardiovascular disease and are we panicking and shutting down fast food restaurants? No, we're not. So this whole idea of one death is too many. Well, why isn't it one, why is it one death too many for cardiovascular disease when it's like super preventable and COVID not so much? <laughs> so it is kind of a weird thought process. Right. Which has made it, it has made it, you know, over this whole, this whole last year, a little bit hard to take some of these things seriously when, when, like you're saying, those ideas kind of, you know, no, you know, no risk is acceptable. No one should ever leave the house, you know, one life. And it's like, wait a minute, where were you <laughs> in terms of promoting health over the last, you know, X number of years or decades? And suddenly, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating to a lot of people that I've seen and talked to that, it's just this overwhelming focus on one issue. Um, when we all know there's a life is very complicated. You know, there's lots and lots of things that are important to live a, a good life, you know, your family and being able to work and all of these things. And that's, you know, there's a, there's a flexibility of focus. That's a key to a good, you know, ability to live your life. Just like we approach chiropractic and say, okay, the body has to be adaptable. There has to be an adaptability in how we, how we think about things. And so really working on, you know, in the book, and I, I targeted it to the chiropractic audience just because I wanted it to start there. I knew it would spread faster there. I'd love to see it get out into, you know, basically from chiropractors. You know, I designed it and I've seen people, you know, um, colleagues and, you know, buying bulk issues of it, just like they had, like we have in the past with chiropractic first and saying, here you go. And you know, handing it out to patients, selling it to patients, you know, people that are new to chiropractic and putting it in their hands because it, it creates this flexibility of, okay, I understand, you know, I can look at this from a new perspective and make, you know, make decisions not solely from this risk reduction paradigm in only one category, which is that's if people want to live that way, that's fine. I'm not telling people that that is unimportant or that they shouldn't, you know, there's people that that's, I'm sure, you know, people and I do and everyone knows someone like that, but that's, a choice and it's not a choice because we know that that is the absolute best way to get the best outcome overall. That's just, up, you know, it's just up for, you know, we just don't know that. Um, so yeah, I, I really wanted to put this out to the chiropractic community and just help equip people with tools and mindsets. And, and, you know, I, I've gotten really good feedback from other chiropractors and patients to say, okay, here, you know, it's an easy, it's a quick read and, and uh, put a, a, a healthier frame, I think. it's a, Because I, I really don't, you know, I don't go out and say, okay, I'm not going to discount this thing and this illness doesn't exist and there's no risk, like, all, you know, because I don't think that's responsible as a healthcare provider either. There's, there's uh, risks and benefits on both sides. And, uh, you know, the clearer that we can think about, about where we want to go, the easier it is to handle the details. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction to make is that we're not discounting anything. We're providing an alternative approach. Um, and then the focus is on the alternative, not not what the other side is doing wrong, necessarily. Yeah, it's I can't... Uh, it's interesting. I'm curious to hear how it's been on the sort of the chiropractic college uh, scene that's, you know, you, you get so many people going through the education process. It was really, you know, I remember it being a really, uh, you know, a lot of hot debates and people developing their, not only their philosophy, but also their skills. And then you get out and you graduate and it seems like a long time when you're there. And then, uh, you know, the farther you get away from it, and it seems like the blink of an eye, you know, as you get out of school. But I can't imagine what it'd be like going through a chiropractic um schooling right now like i'll give it like a quick example so i had a friend of mine she runs a, a massage therapy school locally where i am um 
outside of Boston. And she read the book, loved the book. And she said, yeah, I want to give a copy of this to all the graduates. And I was a little surprised. I thought, okay, well, you know, it was pretty chiropractic tailored. And, you know, what would they think graduating as, as uh, massage therapists? And, you know, it's very chiropractic focused. And I thought about it. And I was like, man, I can't imagine what it's like, you know, because these, I don't know if they get equipped with the same, you know, philosophical background that we can as chiropractors, you know, sometimes you have to seek it out more than, uh, you know, you would think to get it. Um, but I thought, boy, you know, getting out and just being paranoid to even practice, like, is that, is that where these people are, are at? And imagine, you know, spending all this time and energy getting this education, wanting to help people, put your hands on people, heal naturally, and then thinking, oh, you know, can I even encounter another human being, you know? Yeah, I I probably can't say all my thoughts without getting myself in trouble. But what it seems like is that the student, like everything, the students are being polarized into one of two ways. And what a lot of us are seeing is that either the students have, are trying to figure out a way that they can stay home, never come to campus and get that magical piece of paper, or they come to class, they come to school, they want to be there as much as they can, and they're really gung-ho, and they want to learn to be the best they can. Uh, we had our first Gonstead Club meeting last night, and one of the questions that uh, Cooper asked him in the introduction is how many of them really were really committed to being the best chiropractors they could be. And it was not just hands going up, but very enthusiastic that they were there because they wanted to learn, and it was a huge turnout. And so it's like, on one hand, real chiropractic is growing. Gonstead Club is absolutely growing, but then there's this other sub-segment who, um, I, I get emails from people, but they basically, they're afraid to come back to school. They're worried about their own health issues. Um, whatever reason they have, they really are trying to do it without coming on campus. And so as instructors, we're constantly trying to figure out how can we do the best we can to get them the same education, not on campus as we would give them here. And it's a huge challenge, but uh, everybody's always brainstorming together. If somebody figures something out, they share it. We try to come up with ways of how can we do this better? And I'm even taking things I did last quarter and thinking, well, how can I modify it this quarter to make it better knowing what I learned from last quarter? So it's just an ongoing process of trying to give the best education we can. But then on the student side, that's what I see is I would say more, more than not, most people are very, um, I would say that the passion is growing, not shrinking, at least at, at life. That's that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And happy, you know, if it, I don't know if it makes sense or how they, you know, structure what, what uh, venues there are for it. But I remember when I was in chiropractic school and I was going to uh, uh, Palmer in Iowa. And I mean, I just, I was going to, you know, it was, it was the chiropractic was so rich there. I'm sure it's the same at life at this point, but you know, I was going to see, you know, it was a speaker Friday night seminar you know <laughs> all weekend and then back at it you know, at school you know I was, I was always a pretty good student it was just a natural skill set for me that um enabled me to always keep an, one of my eyes on the you know on the more professional aspect of chiropractic just in terms of the philosophy and the practice of it um along with the school curriculum so yeah, yeah I'm happy, happy to fill in and do whatever uh, whatever you guys would want on that end because um, I'm sure it's a unreal chaotic time. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you know for a lot of the students there, and uh, and uh, yeah, I can't imagine that uh, it's an easy time to be getting through uh, chiropractic school right now. Yeah, it's 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 definitely it's definitely different. Um... And even the Gonsta Club schedule is very busy with weekend seminars and things like that. They've got Dr. Wood coming this weekend. Um, I guess actually by the time this goes out, I, he will have already been here. Um, they've got um, they've got other people coming to do seminars. Um, there's a group of us, and I'm planning on going to the GMI seminar uh, in Iowa at the end of the month. So um, there's definitely a long list of things for them to do, and we have no problem getting people to join onto these things and sign on to them because there's plenty of interest and plenty of desire. It's just, it's just bringing them, bringing them up and getting them up to speed because um, the shutdown that COVID caused um, back in March, it, it basically shut the school down for almost a whole quarter doing almost nothing. Right. And so trying to, we're still trying to get, get going again after that, but it's almost like that little shutdown almost created this influx of more people. So it's been an interesting dynamic. I think a lot of people have seen that in their practices as well. Um, that 
COVID didn't, the shutdown didn't really cause them that much trouble. Maybe they were down a little bit, but then since then, I, I know a lot of people with offices that are just flooding with patients. So um, that's, it's been an interesting dynamic to see. Yeah. I, I have, uh, you know, while practicing with them, all the guidelines and whatnot, I've had busiest, my busiest weeks in my, in my private practice. Uh, yeah. And most likely this week, you know, that we're talking will probably be another one. Um, yeah, like you were saying, and I, I remember that around the, you know, the chiropractor school dynamic, and it's probably, a, it's just a microcosm of our society, but people getting pushed into sort of one extreme or the other. And that was one thing that I really took aim at in the book. I, I think for whatever reason, and probably chiropractors in general, but I, I have a very contrarian viewpoint but I tend to point it at both sides. Um, and so I think that there's, there are things that are challenging for anyone that wants to sort of sit in the comfort zone of one of the extremes right now there. I took aim at that because it's easy to say, okay, well, this is the way it is. My way is the right way. And that's what I think about it. And I, I didn't want, you know, I refused to do that for my patients to say, well, I'm just going to just stick my head in the sand and ignore the idea that there is risk because there, there, there is like, I, you know, lived outside one of the worst outbreaks in the world. It is Boston. It didn't, you know, Massachusetts, it didn't get a lot of headlines, but I went through all the data and it was, it was, uh, you know, in and among the mix of some of the worst places. And you know, I, I have, you know, f people I know well or, or family members, people that were, were working right in the midst of the worst of that here. You know, you know, some of these hospitals are pretty well known and well thought of in you know, Mass General and whatnot and right right in the mix of it and heard that side of it. And I know the chiropractic side of it really well. And so I wanted to do two things. One, you know, sort of force people out of these extremes where it gets to the point where it's not serving them but also put a path in front of us where we can say, okay, it's okay to, to look at the, the real challenges that we're facing, you know, eyeball to eyeball and square them down and say, okay, but we still have a, a really strong place to move forward to, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that, um, you know, it can be easier to just sort of set up camp and say, well, I know that the way that this is, and I'll spend my time and energy arguing with the people that are completely opposed to, to my ideas and they have the opposite ideas and I'll just spend my time and energy arguing them. And it can be, I remember, you know, in my chiropractic school, I remember that, you know, in different whole sides of a whole bunch of different uh, divisions within the profession. And I got, it was, it's really easy to do that. And then you get outside as a professional and that goes away. You have to you have to seek out the opportunity to stay in that mix if you want to do that. As a professional, mm -hmm. get out and people are showing up, being like, "Hey, I need help with this problem, and I need to get from A to B. And are you the person that can help me with that?" And so, really, patient—that's what patients are looking for, by and large. You can create a following by, you know, just ba basically being extreme and and uh, and uh, uh, you know kind of creating a, a following around that and that works. Um, but I think the, the bulk of the population, they're just looking around saying, who, who's a good person that can help me live better. Mm -hmm. And that can be, you know, it, it's a, it can be a little bit harder to do, but I've always been, that's where I've been, you know, it's like, okay, that I'm going to give my expertise and I know the value of chiropractic and the, and the paradigm of it. And then also not just rely on it. Say, okay, well, you know, chiropractic does the healing and allow myself to just be, or, you know, you know, chiropractic is what it, what it is and does what it does. And I'll just show up and turn the lights on and it'll happen. And that's what I, it was one of the things I love about the Gonset technique, because like what Dr. Gonset said, you know, if chiropractic works and you as a practitioner are responsible for maximizing it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, the, the Gonset technique and what we took from him and, and the, and the, and the, you know, not just the system, but the, the mindset around it that Dr. Gonset left, it, it uh, allows you to do both. You know, it really says, okay, this principle is extremely valuable. 
and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking one of the, one of the things you talk about in the book that um, I think is kind of a hard sell, but I think it's one of these areas where we need to do, I don't want to say battle, but it's, we need to start influencing people with this idea is you talk about the fact that a certain amount of exposure is necessary to create health. And I, I never thought about it, but I know that that concept is so foreign to people because they, they live under this paradigm that if we could somehow sterilize the entire world, nobody would get sick again. And they don't understand that that's not true, that sterilizing the world of bacteria would basically mean almost instant death for all of us because we rely on them not just to create vitamins, but also as food digestion. Like if we have no bacteria, we're in big trouble. And even the viruses for the longest time were thought to be nothing but trouble, but it's starting to come around that it's that it appears that viruses might actually play a role in, um, in how our body regenerates new tissue. So, um, there's a concept on that anyway. Um, so it's like, we have to, I remember with patients, I've seen a number of patients who had shingles because chiropractic works really well for shingles. And so I would see these patients with shingles and I would adjust them. And almost every time they're like, Oh, well, are you worried about touching the shingles with your bare hand? And I was like, it's fine. And I've never gotten the shingles from doing it because I had the chicken pox and I have a healthy immune system. And I actually know that that exposure is going to keep me from getting the shingles. And, but people just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's, that is kind of a hard sell, but do you, what role do you think that plays too in us having some influence on people that maybe complete sterilization is not the way to go? Maybe what we need is some exposure, especially with this new wipe everything down, breathe through a mask concept we have. Yeah, I, I addressed that in the book and it really is a, you know, it was one of those things where I thought, okay, I'm going to, how far am I going to tiptoe right to this line? Because I... Right. Right. <laughs> their outcome is going to be, you know, and or, you know, I have a reader and, you know, to some extent, same with a patient right in front of them. You, I can't tell you, okay, I know what your outcome is going to be. That's not my role as a, as a doctor, but what I, and I felt like it was a really strong place to come from is I'm going to make it, I'm going to get right into the middle of that conversation. I'm going to make it really obvious that there are risks and benefits to both sides. Um, you know, there are, you know, certain level of, you have to have some level of exposure to the real world. We know that this sort of extreme, um, sterilization, never be exposed to any, any sort of microbial, uh, environment has, it carries risks and it carries frequently carries real harms. And then there's real harms that come from infectious disease. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to duck that either. So knowing that there are, there is a line that you can't, that, you know, that you can walk where you can maximize your benefits relative to your risks, knowing that there is that line that exists. And also knowing that you can't perfectly walk that line. That the, the smartest thing to do that after saying, okay, let's lay out that scenario. Let's look at that scenario. And I lay out some really specific examples, um, you know, throughout, throughout history that what is what is the argument against getting as healthy and strong as you can in the face of that being our our reality yeah yeah it, 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 yeah it's it's just such a strange concept because we've been taught for so long that um that these things are bad and these things are good. And the way to not get sick is to avoid the bad things at all costs. And um, the trying to get people convinced that maybe some exposure to those things is a good thing is just such a hard sell. Um, and, but we do kind of see where it's going without doing it. Um, another thing you wrote about in the book, uh, kind of on the same lines has to do with the, um, you wrote about the bacterial load among the soldiers during the 1918 flu pandemic. And I've, I've actually studied the flu pandemic a lot. And so my wife and I were just having this conversation the other day because it started with her saying, she was like, now give me perspective. What did that pandemic look like? And I said, well, there was about 1.4 billion people on the planet at the time. And depending on estimations, they say it killed about, conservatively, they say it killed about 75 million. But 
the, the good authors say it probably killed a lot more than that, that actually it was so devastating when it happened and it was so rapid that there probably was not good transcription of what was actually happening and the bodies were piling up faster than they could count them. So they basically just don't have good records because of how devastating it was. So we don't know. We just know it killed a lot of people. I said, however, it is pretty well known that the biggest plague was Black Plague, which occurred 1347 to 1351, if I recall correctly. Um, and at that time, there were 450 million people on the planet, and it killed somewhere between 75 million and 200 million. So I said, that's what a plague looks like when half the population of the planet disappears. Um, and I said, and what's funny about the flu pandemic is that all the authors agree that what majorly contributed to it was the fact that there was a world war being fought at the same time. And so people who were not related to each other were in close quarters because um, soldiers were being transported across the country by boxcar. So they would take these soldiers, put them in a boxcar, lock them in, put them on a train for 12 to 24 hours with no circulation of air, just breathing the same air. And when they would get off, they'd all be sick, which... It's a pretty good bet they would have been sick with something anyway by that point. Um, and so that caused the spread and they didn't recognize it. And by the time they recognized it, it was spreading so fast. And so sanitation was terrible. And so it's true that there was this high bacterial load. And one of the things that I thought was interesting right off the bat was the original formula that they came up with for trying to deal with COVID had to do with um, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and a Z-pack. And so I was looking into that. And so the way the story went is that zinc can kill the virus when it's in your bloodstream. But once it goes into the cell, the zinc cannot penetrate the cell to get to the inside. However, hydroxychloroquine does penetrate the cell and go to the inside. So the hydroxychloroquine works as a carrier to carry the zinc, if you take them together, into the cell to kill it inside the cell. But the oddball that I could not understand is why are they giving these people a Z-pack? It's an antibiotic. And this is a viral Thing. Why would you give a, an, antibi an antibiotic for a viral condition? And it had to do with the fact that they discovered that people with high bacterial load were more susceptible. And one of the keys to helping it was to reduce the bacterial load. So it's very interesting, this concept that's kind of emerging that was always kind of there, but kind of being ignored is the concept of bacterial load and viral load that we have to be somewhat cautious because we can be in situations with high load and we can be in situations with low load and what constitutes a higher low load depends from person to person. And once again, we're back to the idea that we're all unique. We're at different levels of health and what works for one person does not work for another. And that's kind of why one size fits all medicine is not a great philosophy for life really. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Since you originally wrote about the bacterial load. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it, it uh, completely, uh, you know, dovetails with the Gonstead chiropractic approach that, you know, and this is the way I sum it up for patients. They're trying to put the whole, you know, just their whole understanding of chiropractic and, and what it means to them and the specific approach they're, they're receiving as a patient. Might I say, you know what? Uh, chiropractic is tremendous. I've seen it deliver great results. Body is tremendous at healing when it, it gets the the right circumstances and the right ability to do it and i just know that i've always had the firm belief that the more specifically i can tailor what i'm doing to exactly what your body needs the better results that patients get and i just make it really simple and that it really resonates and hits home I'm like okay great like this guy's he's got a system and we're gonna roll our sleeves up and get to work and make it you know as tailored and effective for them and you know, kind of in, in terms of the infectious part, disease part of it. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. A lot of what I learned about that flu pandemic in 1918, you know, what I learned over the past year, so much you know, involved. Like, so the influenza virus was named after the bacteria, Haemophilus influenza was named first because that's initially what they thought that these patients would, you know, it was such an issue. And so what happened, you know, just like we talked about, there's this interplay between, between exposure and the risks of it, you know, just exposure generally um, to microbes and also infectious disease, you know, and the, you know, potential from them and then the benefits of it. And one of the research studies that I cite in the book where they talk about who really struggled on the actual, you know, get, 
battlefield and, you know, kind of in the actual wartime environments were these new soldiers, the guys that had been in and around this environment for quite some time and had adapted to right. a real bacterial stew, which obviously these guys, I mean, I can't even imagine that living environment, you know, you're, you're living in a trench. There are, you know, probably no electricity, probably, you know, who knows what the idea of running water and sanitation was. It had to be just an absolute brutal living conditions. Like I know there's dental conditions, like oral, like trench mouth, like literal, like, like dental conditions named after, okay, it was so bad that yeah. <laughs> after what was happening there. But the guys that had been around and, and had this exposure actually fared better because they got, you know, they all got exposed to the virus, but it was the people that were more resistant to a secondary infection were more resistant. So, you know, how do you design that? You can't really. It's like, okay, I don't necessarily want to, you know, expose myself to horrible conditions, but it 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 really um, exemplified the idea of, okay, we really need to just be mature about the idea that there are risks and benefits and be able to have hard conversations. Um, and that's, there's a, a lot of that in the book is that, you know what, let's, let's stop being, to, taking an immature approach to what is going on right now and to our lives and our outcomes and be able to have some of these hard, hard conversations. Cause there's the same thing, like when they, when they talk about, uh, you know, the outcomes of what happened in that flu pandemic, the older people were largely spared and they, you know, research I cited in there that they believe that. It was because they had been exposed to similar strains when when they were younger, whereas the younger people had no, um, you know, had no exposure. So on the other side, yeah, there's there's risk. You know, there's a risk to long term negative outcomes to really, uh, you know, harmful, harmful microbes. That's a that's a real thing. Um, and then there's also some level of benefit like you can't really go that far with this conversation because you know, people see the risk of it and and want to, you know, I'm not saying that we should take action around it. I'm not saying people should have chicken pox parties, but if you look at this sort of silver lining on a risk benefit conversation, okay, well, right now, the people like here in Massachusetts where um, the real growth and the spread of this has been in more younger people. Well, in a hypothetical situation, if you took the older generation now that's really struggled with this, you know, where there's been real, real mortality and death, if they had had exposure to something like this that didn't have a real health outcome that was negative when they were young, would they be experiencing what they're having right now? Well, we don't know, but, uh, you know, you can't say yes or no, but it is a, uh, you know, there is for sure a topic of discussion that's on the table that we can, you know, and we're all making these decisions around what we do and don't do. I, I sit on the side of let's have, you know, informed, mature, mature conversations about this and what we know and where we want to go um, around it. <laughs> Maybe there's yeah. people that say, oh, you know, people can't handle that and they just need to be told what to do. Yeah, I, it's pretty amazing when you start studying the, the flu pandemic and some of the odd things that happened, the fact that it, it did happen in two waves and the people who got sick in the first wave did not get sick in the second. So it, it again, kind of highlights the whole fact that there is an immunity that happens and it kind of, I guess it may be frustrated. I saw a fact checker online that said that, no, the flu pandemic did not happen in multiple waves. And I was like, no, it's documented history. It absolutely did, but whatever. Um, but it seems like it, people are trying to be de-educated from, from understanding these things that, no, the immune system does do what it does do and that we have an immune system and that we need to be working on accentuating that and trying to maximize it the best we can. And that minimal amounts of exposure is just is one way of doing that. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, it's it's a, something that Dr. Gon said left. I mean, the guy lived a lifestyle and a life that realistically, you know, you and I are not going to, nor is anyone that is listening or anyone we know going to do, you know, who's, who's going to put the amount of time and hours into any craft or profession the way that, that he did, you know, in terms of just being at work past 12, one in the morning, you know, routinely, you know, 
uh, you know, multiple times per week for however long that went on, years or decades. Um, you know, not really taking on a lot of family life or other, you know, he just put everything he had, as far as I can tell, into what he did. So that for me is, you know, I, I know that that is not who I am. You know, I, I have a more balanced life and I think it's healthy for the vast majority of people. And I don't think people can do what he did. I think that, you know, our, that generation that learned from him and can be, you know, those are the people that I really seek out and can be some of our greatest teachers. I think they paid a price pretty frequently for trying to replicate that, you know, just seeing mass volumes of patients working long hours, you know, late, late, late in the day with a very, you know, challenging uh, profession. You know, as Gone said, it can be, you know, some of the more demanding way to deliver care. Um, but at the same time, it's this idea that we can work hard and apply ourselves and, you know, he, he pushed the envelope. He didn't say, okay, well, I'll just work within the lines. He, he, he didn't reject everything. You know, he was respectful of BJ and, and, and the experts in the profession then, but he was also not willing to say, okay, well, I'll just do what people say is the way that things should be done. It's like, I, I am going to learn, I'm going to progress. I'm going to maximize what I'm able to do and develop better ways of doing things. And that's a legacy yeah. for us, you know? Yeah. That's one thing I always try to convey to students is that, despite how other people might try to portray the Gonstead community, um, we very much want to progress the work. We don't want to just seal it in stone and say, this is what Gonstead did, so that's what we're going to do. There are always efforts to try to say, knowing what he did, how can we do it better? What new technology can we apply to do it better? How can we, how can we do things better without ever giving up the fundamentals of what he discovered about the body because those aren't going to change we just want to come up with better ways of doing what we're already doing and so it is something that's that's dynamic so it's always changing trying to come up with better understanding better knowledge better application um, and that's one of the things i like about it too yeah i mean it's commendable i love what you've done with the podcast i think it's amazing i appreciate you having me around the uh on uh, around talking about stronger than you stronger than you think in the book um you know, I think you're willing to uh, take a bit of a chance on me. I, I had that project in the works and, uh, and uh, you know, we had a great conversation last time about it before I'd even uh, put the final touches on it. And it's great to have it out and, um, and uh, get it out there in front of, in front of people and talk to, uh, talk to you about it. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. I, I think it's excellent because this, I, I don't want this to sound bad, but I think one of the things that's excellent about it is it's not a long read. And it seems we live in a day and age where people have short attention spans. So you're going to have to capture them and get your message across as quickly as possible. And the book does that really well because it's not a, uh, a four inch thick book, which is probably what I would write because I tend to be long winded. Um, it's, it's much more manageable. And so you can sit down and read it. And I think that that is one of the reasons why people have liked the idea of getting it, putting it in their office and giving it to their patients because you can give it to their patients and you can now download into their brains a whole bunch of chiropractic information really quickly. Uh, and really succinctly in a way that they can absorb and that might, and that'll then cause them to want to seek more and, and know more and understand more. So I, I think it's an excellent way of, of getting that Gonstead, Gonstead slash chiropractic message across to people. Well, I appreciate that because I did put a lot of time and energy to edit it, to actually edit it down. So I do. Yeah, I agree. I consider that a value add that uh, I tried to deliver as much uh, value as I could in as short a time as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you gotta know your audience and today's audience does not have a long attention span most of the time <laughs> so yeah that's very that well thank you for coming on and, and sharing with us um, i'm sure we'll have you on again uh, in the future so thank you so much yep anytime love doing it and uh yeah happy to jump on anytime once again i'd like to thank dr davis for joining me today as we start a new year, I think it's always good to start by getting our mind right and focusing clearly on our target. As we move forward in the coming weeks and we look at the precise application of the Gonstead system, we should always remember that the ultimate goal is results followed by education. Dr. Gonstead used to say that you have no right to talk to the patient about chiropractic until you've given them a result first. The truth of the matter is that once you get them a result, they will ask you about chiropractic and you won't have to force anything on anyone. Your biggest struggle will be to satisfy their curiosity with enough information. And that's where Dr. Davis's book can be a handy resource to give to the patient. 
If you're a chiropractor or a chiropractic student and you're interested in learning more about the proper application of the Gonstead system, the Gonstead Methodology Institute will be having a case management seminar the last weekend of this month. You can sign up for the seminar at their website at gonsteadmethodology.com. Additionally, I'd like to encourage everyone to join the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society. For doctors, you get listed in the directory along with all of our valuable newsletters and access to our members section, which includes a large collection of research relevant to the Gonstead doctor. Students can also get all the newsletters with student membership for just $15 a year. There's really no reason not to join if you're a student. We also have membership options for lay people who want to support the research mission of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society. You can check out all the membership options at the GCSS website at gonstead.com. Well, I hope you found today's episode to be beneficial in helping you to shape your thoughts and refine your communication strategies with your patients. Next week, we'll dive into more application, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.